Let's pray. God, you reign. Thank you for the sweetness of your sovereign purposes that confound our minds and deeply comfort our hearts. Thank you that there is not one thing that's ever happened to any of us that you weren't in control of it completely. Thank you there's nothing that takes you by surprise. Thank you that everything that happens is a divine instrument, like a surgeon's scalpel, meant to heal, even though the cutting initially is painful. And Lord, today we ask you to once again meet with us. We pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give us understanding of how we can cling to you in the midst of suffering. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful book. Oh, it has been light and life to our souls. It's been good to be reminded of who you are and to turn our attention away from shallow why questions and instead drawing deep from who you are as our sovereign God. And so, oh God, would you reign today, reign through each word and each heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed it, but culturally, culturally, hope is a hot topic. Although hope is hard to find these days. In fact, our uh, president uh, ran his campaign on the subject of hope. Remember that? Uh, His book entitled The Audacity of Hope. The idea of hope for a change and hope in general, that was what our president promised that he would bring. And it's what, frankly, our country is longing for, hope. And yet every single day in the news, we hear more bad news. Have you had this thought? How could it get any worse? Scandal after scandal. uh, People bilking uh, investors out of billions of dollars. It's hard to even imagine a news report that would somehow give us positive news, any glimmer of hope. And and one of the things that I want you to understand as believers in the midst of this kind of culture that we're presently in, one of the things that I want you to capture and understand is that these are unique days for the followers of Jesus. The reason why is because we have hope, that's why. Because we don't live for this world. We don't live for this present lifetime. And the Bible tells us that our life is like a vapor, like that, that, that cold breath that you saw this morning when you walked outside to start your car, that instantaneous breath and then vanishes. That's what this life is like. And, and we have as believers an unprecedented opportunity to tell the world all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. That you could be a beacon of light in your neighborhood, in your office, as people look at your life and you are not shaking under the fear of what could happen. You are firmly resolved in what you know will happen. We live in uncertain days. I want to do a survey. Just how many of you 
have been directly affected by the downturn in the economy. Meaning, you personally have lost either a job, you've seen your business significantly decline, your uh, challenges with your home have, have increased in terms of your mortgage payment. How many of you have been directly affected? Let me see your hands. Raise your hand. Okay, good. How many of you, second question, know someone who's been directly affected like the first question? You know somebody. I got a friend, neighbor, friend. Raise your hand. All right, good. You understand the scope of what we're talking about. Every single one of us, to some extent, either has been or knows someone who's affected by this cultural hopelessness, really, that seems to exist. And yet followers of Jesus know that God is in absolute, complete control. They know that life is a vapor and that what we have in this world is not what we're really living for. And this is the time for followers of Jesus to demonstrate by their lives, oh, I guess you don't live for this world. That's why you're so full of hope and joy. And then by their generosity and by their their giving and, and by their benevolence for one another that we demonstrate that in the midst of the darkest of hour, the bright light of the gospel shines most clearly. Suffering of any kind is an opportunity for us to declare to the world what believers in Jesus have. And we have hope, my friends. In fact, this subject of hope in the midst of our culture and the things that are happening around us is is so important and I think such a critical moment for us in our lifetime that I'd originally planned to start the book of Matthew in two weeks or three weeks and instead we're going to defer that till after Easter and the Think Conference is next weekend. Dr. Ware will be speaking. Bruce Ware and then Joe Bartimus is going to talk about the subject of Trinity as it relates to College Park. I've asked him to do that, take the conference and then make it like really practical. Joe, you know us. Help us know how Trinity works with us, even more specifically. And then the third week, I'm going to bring a message called this, Revealing Christ in a Recession. And the call will be this. In light of everything we've learned in Job and in all that we have in Christ, shouldn't this be the moment, shouldn't this be the hour when our light should shine the brightest? Shouldn't this be the moment where, where we, of all people, offer to the world hope? And shouldn't we listen to the cultural conversation that's happening and then declare to it with utter abandonment and unbelievable zeal, we have what you're looking for. We have it. It's Jesus. Your house won't work. Your income won't last. You, you can't have security in those things. The only one that gives that is Christ. This is an unprecedented opportunity. And therefore, we're going to talk about that. Today, however, is our last message in the book of Job. I always get a little sentimental, a little sappy when we close up series. Because they're like friends. It's like you have a conversation with them. And today we we close up this, this series that has been really helpful to my own soul. We've tried, I've tried to lay before you the fact that the answer to the who question is far more valuable and hopeful and satisfying than the why question. That's, that's like the one thing I've said over and over and over for seven weeks. If you haven't gotten it, I don't know what you've been doing for the last seven weeks. Because I've said that like 15 times, I think. And essentially the premise of this whole series has been this, that why questions in the midst of suffering are normal, but they're not satisfying. That the ultimate answer to suffering is who? It's the character of God. It's, it's what we just sang about. God, you reign. That's the answer. It's that you're in control. And I can trust you. And we come to chapter 42. 
where Job has passed the test. And what he has done is proven, unknowingly, but proven it, nonetheless, that the giver is more worthy than his gifts. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, Satan and God had a conversation about this, what Satan thought was a quid pro quo relationship between God and Job. You give him gifts, he gives you glory. You're not so worthy, was the charge. You're not so worthy, God, that if you take away the gifts, you'll still be worshipped. No, you see, these human beings are in it for all the benefits. Take away the benefits, they will curse you. Just watch. And so God says, let's try. And what Job proves, and what the world sees through this massive book, is that God is worthy. Even though He takes away gifts, even though He does things that are hard, at the end of the day, even though hardship comes, His worth still shines clearly. The beauty beauty of this book has been its God-centered declaration of God's infinite worth, even from hurting and suffering people. Before we get into chapter 42... I want to ask you a question, and it's this. When you're in the middle of suffering or something that's hard, maybe caused by somebody else or not caused directly by somebody else, what is it that you want at the end? Meaning, as you're thinking about suffering and you're thinking, I can't wait till this is over. What does over look like? What is it that you're hoping someday will come? I think there's at least two, maybe more, things that, that people want when they're suffering. The first one is the issue of resolution, meaning that God is going to solve this. The second one is restoration, that God is going to fix it. They're different, let me explain how. When I say resolution that God will solve this, there's some of you that your suffering was directly caused by somebody else and the thing that happened wasn't fair. You've had somebody talk about you. Somebody slander you. And what are you going to do? You can't go around and try and fix it. it you, you can't fix it. Or a, a, a boss who decided that your name needed to go on the cut list because... His or her perceptions of of who you are as a person. And they were completely baseless. And, And there's this sense of justice in your heart. That at the end of the day, what you want is for somebody to step in and say, That was wrong. That was wrong. And you wish you could go in and say that to your boss. Or the person who did that. Or the person back in your past when you were a kid. And somebody would get in their face and say, What you did was so stinking wrong. And you can't do it. There's nothing, you, you can't do that. And that's why suffering is hard. Because there's, there's no justice. There, there's no, there's no pound of flesh right now. Some of you, that's what your suffering's about. And at the end of the day, what you want is you want God to solve it. Not just fix it, you want justice. And that's not a bad thing. The second thing is restoration. It's that God, in His infinite wisdom, has caused things to be taken away from you. And so you go to Valentine's Day and there's, there's no date. Because there's no person. You go to Thanksgiving meal and while everyone's seated around the table, you know there's one place that is vacant. 
Or you got a little box like we do in our closet. With all of the baby stuff, the pictures. And there's an amputation in your life. It's like a missing limb and it's healed. The scar is there. The wound is closed. But the reality is something's missing. And there's just this, this sense that you're like, God, would you, you're going to fix this someday, right? But the reality is you can't bring them back. You can heal emotionally, but the loss is always there. You're being treated for cancer. And after nine weeks, ten weeks of chemotherapy, you go back and a few months later you get another CAT scan and you find out the cancer's back. And this time there's no other treatments. And so rather than having things turn out positively, the person dies. Well, what's, what's the restoration look like? You see, at the end of the day, what we want in the midst of suffering is at least these two things. We want resolution, meaning, God, you're going to go in and you're going to make it right. You're going you're to tell me what was, what was, you're going to separate fact from fiction, truth from error. You're going to step in and once and for all set the record straight. That's what you want. It's not a bad thing. Or there's such a hole in your heart that you long for the day when God will make you feel whole again, like everything will be brought back. And this is where Job 42 helps us. Because this book has taught us that the who question, who God is, is far more hopeful in this lifetime than the why question. Because here's where we are. We are we're, we're stuck in this realm where we have an event that takes place, something that happens that's not enjoyable, and we have this, this future hope that one day God's going to resolve everything and restore everything. But that's not now. And so in the meantime, here you are stuck between your future hope and your present pain. And that's where you have to learn how to live. You have to live in this perpetual tension between human pain that is beyond belief and divine sovereignty beyond comprehension. You know He's going to make it right and it really hurts. And here you must learn to say, I choose to bless I choose to believe. I choose to trust. I choose by faith to believe that you are going to fix this. You're going to solve this. And that is the hope that believers and followers of Jesus Christ have. That is what you don't have, by the way, if you don't know Christ. You don't have that. And that may be why you're here today, because in your soul you're trying to figure out what is going on. And it may be that God is this morning calling you and telling you the only way is to be right with me first by your sins through Christ, and then we can talk about your suffering. The hope for a believer in Jesus is that ultimate restoration and resolution will happen, and we get a small taste of that in Job 42. Job doesn't know why. He doesn't know about the rest of the story of the Bible. We do. And what you'll find in Job 42 is this small little picture of the ultimate ends in suffering. The ultimate ends of suffering. It is that the ultimate ends of suffering are resolution. God's going to solve it. And restoration. God's going to fix it. And that's what we see. And then we're also... Half of the message is on Job. The other half is on the New Testament. 
The whole message is about God. Job 42. These closing verses of Job show us how God solves and fixes the outstanding issues in his life. So what specifically does God solve? He, he solves the outstanding issue as to who was right, Job or the three friends. God clearly answers and solves the question once and for all. He steps in and in verse 7 says, And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. So the first thing we see here is that God is angry with the three, the three friends. Notice Elihu is not mentioned, but Eliphaz and the other two are. Eliphaz is addressed as if he's the speaker or the leader of these three men. Secondly, notice that God tells them unequivocally that they're wrong. He says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. What a moment that must have been. Oh, man. That would have been one of those moments if I was sitting there and go, Mm-hmm. Or maybe this, I'm not saying a word. God tells them they're wrong. You have not spoken to me what is right as my servant. Hear that. My servant. My servant Job has. <laughs> then, then notice what he says. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams. That's an expensive offering. And look what they have to do. And go to my servant Job. And offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Now just imagine the scene. Okay? Three friends, seven bulls, seven lambs. They're, they're coming to uh, Job. And they say, Job, um, God's told us that you're right and we're wrong. And would you mind praying for us? Because God said he's not going to hear us unless... You pray. I mean, can you imagine this moment? I mean, what would you do? <laughs> no, right? <laughs> 31 chapters of no. I'm not going to pray for you. You guys drive me nuts. Go find somebody else. No, what does he do? Job serves as their mediator. How, how humbling this must have been. Job is becomes the one who intercedes for them. And it says here that God will accept Job's prayer on their behalf. How sweet of justice is this. Can you imagine? I mean, think of the person that's like dissed you the worst in life. Just think of them. And then God comes to them and says, hey, you were wrong, he was right, you go to him and ask him to pray for you and maybe I'll accept you. And that person comes groveling on their knees and says to you, I was so wrong, will you pray for me? I mean, talk about sweet justice. Lord, I pray for this wicked sinner for everything he said. Can you imagine that? What, what just, what divine retribution is so beautiful here? God says their words have been folly. It's the same thing that Job said to his wife. She, she said, curse God and die. He said, you speak like one of the foolish women. Their words were folly, meaning that if he had done what they had suggested, he would have fallen right into Satan's plans. Just, just say you're, you've sinned so you get your stuff back, and Job won't do it. And then verse 8 ends with another restatement of what God says. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. 
And so God has the last word here. He makes the final ruling. He solves everything. He, he, he rules. Job is right. The friends are wrong. He solves it. Verse 9 then brings the role of the three friends to the close. It says, So Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, Zophar, the Namathite, they went and did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Here's something that only God could do. He settled it once and for all. He unequivocally and with sovereign insight said, You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. It's God's place to say those words. It is God's place to say those words. Not mine, not yours. It's only a sovereign God who could take the problem of who's right and who's wrong and settle it and let truth be known and let the whole world know Job is right, your friends are wrong. And some of you have suffered greatly under the lack of biblical and sovereign statement as to whether or not you're right and they're wrong. And you need to know one day it's coming. So let them talk. Let them say whatever they want to say. It doesn't matter. One day, truth will be known. Don't take your pound of flesh. Don't become bitter. Don't become angry. Try to do something by becoming angry. Don't do that. Instead, trust. Rest. And let it go. Because one day, He's going to make it right. He'll solve it. Secondly, notice that Job is restored. After solving the problem of who was right and who was wrong, God then fixes everything that the calamity in Job's life had created. Verse 10 says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Now look at verse 11. It's important. It says this, Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, And they ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each one of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Verse 11 is important for two reasons. First, notice that God used the generosity of family and friends to meet Job's needs and help him start over. So it's not as though God just said, here's money, Just there's a pot of gold sitting in your house. He used friends, and this is like the first shower <laughs> without games, right? <laughs> I went to one shower in my lifetime, it was our engagement shower, to know this is not an environment I'm comfortable in. I know. I, I can't play the games well, and this, I just really don't enjoy this very much. But this is a shower. They threw a shower for him, and they, they gave him gifts, gold. And look at that. God used these gifts and He blessed it. There's some lessons there that part of the way in which God restores people is in the generosity of others. It's not as though we can just sit back and say, Lord, I pray you'd bless him with a million dollars in his bank account. It means God wants you to give him the 20 bucks that's in yours. His friends and family gather around him, and God is the one who gives the increase, but he uses the graciousness of others as a part of his plan. 
There's something about that that we need to listen to and note, and we'll talk about it more in three weeks. Notice, secondly, this verse reminds us again that God was the one who was ultimately responsible and behind everything that happened. God was the one that gives, and He's the one that takes away. It says they comforted him for all the evil can also be translated as disaster or calamity that the Lord had brought upon him. So we saw it at the beginning with God giving Satan permission. And we see it at the end that his friends realized that everything that happened, the Lord was behind, so that unequivocally and undeniably, the Lord is in the center of the causality of all that happens. Don't just believe that behind all the nice things is the Lord, but also even the hard things, they're good, you just don't see how they are. Be careful about your judgment. There's nothing good that can come from this, really. Because the Scripture unequivocally says that good things can come from bad things. In fact, it says all things work together for good. And that may not fit well in your categories of God, but it may be your packages of God need to be expanded. So what did restoration look like for Job? Well, look at it. Verse 10. He received twice as much as he had before. His latter days, verse 12, were more blessed than the beginning. His livestock was doubled. If you go to chapter 1, you'll see that everything he was given there now is doubled in chapter 42. He was blessed with seven more sons and three more daughters. The text indicates that his, his daughters were special. For some reason, we know their names. Their names are Jemima, which for some of you, that's the first time you've heard that in the Bible. You've always thought it was somehow related to maple syrup or something, but it's actually a Bible name. Before there ever was Aunt Jemima and Mutterworth, there was Jemima in Job. And then there's Keziah or Keziah and Karen Hapuk. And we learn that they're the most beautiful women in all the land. And Job includes them in the allotment of the inheritance. Kind of a, a strange thing that's not usually done that way. Usually just the, the boys receive the inheritance. But Job includes his daughter, his daughters. And it's as though the writer wants us to see that Job is a very proud father. I mean, to have daughters that are described as the most beautiful women in the land, that's like big stuff for a dad. It's like me last night. It's a big jump from Job to Aldi's, but here it goes. In, in Aldi's grocery store, and Savannah's in a little pink outfit with pink shoes with a ponytail, running around, looking at all the food that she wants in the store, and grabbing up pizza rolls and stuff, going, this is my favorite, Daddy. And we're just having a great time. And she's running around and doing stuff. People are looking at her and smiling, and there's this thing, well, oh, she's so cute. Someone comes up to my, me and says, you got an ugly daughter. I'd be like, hey, man, look out. I mean, that's like vengeance time now, right? So something about this that God is highlighting here for us, that Job, his family is uniquely blessed. And then we learn about the longevity of his life. We find out that he lived another 140 years. He lived to see four generations. Four generations. And then the last verse of the book describes Job in a way that's reserved only for the best of the best, the noblest among God's people. It's this, and Job died an old man full of days. So there it is. God fixes everything. He, he restores everything that Job had lost in the previous calamity. And then what's more, God made it all better 
even blessing Job far beyond than what he could have ever possibly imagined. And that's how this glorious book ends. It focuses on the fact that God could be trusted to make everything right. From solving the problem of who was right and who was wrong, to restoring the things that Job had lost. So what happens is that Job receives back every blessing that he had taken away by God, and the ultimate ends of suffering, both resolution and restoration, have finally come. In other words, Job was no fool to have trusted in his living God. Any more than you are. So, there's a part of me that doesn't like the way this book ends. I don't usually like movies or books that end and they live happily ever after because usually it doesn't work out like that. Hallmark movies don't turn out like that. Hallmark movies aren't life. It's a movie. It's fake. It's not real. People don't live happily ever after. And that's what happens here. In fact, I know more people who have gone through suffering and God doesn't ever bring it back. Have a child that dies and there's no other ones that come along. A a great job that is lost and the job's never the same. Cancer that's treated, one time you're healed, the next time you die. So, So why does Job end this way? The more I thought about it, the more we talked about it as a staff, the more I came to understand that The ending of Job is not necessarily just about Job. It's actually, it's about God. Designed to show us that in the end, hoping in a sovereign God to solve and fix things is not a foolish choice at all. So the ending, Job 42, is, is not just about Job. It's more importantly about the who behind the what about the God that is intervening in Job's life. So how does that connect for us as New Testament followers of Christ? It connects this way. A follower of Jesus lives differently in this lifetime because we are supposed to view suffering through a different lens. Because we are told in the Scriptures, particularly towards the end of the Bible, that there will come a day when God will make everything right. He will resolve everything, and He will restore everything. And in fact, the Bible calls this a living hope. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Notice the primacy of hope and the connection to a heavenly inheritance and the resulting joy. Meaning we have hope, excuse me, we have hope because of the inheritance that we have, And we have joy because of where our hope is fixed. Look at 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the difference. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was a harbinger of things to come. It was a statement that there is something that's going to happen. At the end of the day, that Christ, by His raising, being raised from the dead, said to the world, He was right, you were wrong. 
verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. What's this? It is the hope of an eternal inheritance. It's the hope of Christ's resurrection. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice there that the power of this text is the connection between the resurrection of Christ and our hope in the midst of suffering. It means that Christ, having been raised from the dead, secures for us a future hope. And that when we are in this tension between pain that is now and a hope that is future, our confession in this season is, I know who I believe in. And He's alive. And one day, that living Christ will do two things. He will make everything right, and He will restore everything that's broken. It means that we can have firm assurance that God is going to fix it. A few weeks ago, one of our sons had saved up his allowance and his money, and he wanted to buy what he considered to be the ultimate airsoft gun. It's a sniper rifle is what it is. It's like this big. It's metal. It's got a scope, a little bipod. The thing shoots 450 feet per second. He said, Dad, it'll draw blood. <laughs> I was like, sweet, man, that's awesome. So we shopped all over the place, looked on eBay, tried to bid on one, lost it, uh, went from another one, one shop, victoriously got it. And so it came, and uh, we were waiting for days for that thing to come, and I was at a conference when it finally came, and I said, buddy, call me the day it comes, I want to hear about it. So he called me, told me, Dad, it's here, it's awesome. You can't believe how fast it shoots. Another day later, two days later, I got another call, and Sarah said, Mark, Joe needs to talk with you a minute. He's really upset. He got on the phone. He said, Dad, it, it, it's broken. So what do you mean it's broken? He said, the gun, this little plastic piece fell out. Mom says that you, you probably know how to fix it, Dad, but I just, I'm just so frustrated. That, and I said, Joe, listen to me. Listen to me. When I get home, we'll fix it. Or we're going to sue. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, listen, listen. When I get home, son, we're, we're gonna we're gonna fix it. Don't worry about it, hon. We'll find a way to get. We'll fix it. And he said, "Okay, Dad." Sarah got back on the phone. She said, "Thanks. That it just that helps." And some of you just need to hear from your God in the person of Christ. There will come a day when He will fix it. The Book of Revelation is filled with this teaching. Let me show you the resolution that God's going to solve this. Notice first in chapter 19 and verse 11, it says this. There's coming a day when God will bring total and final justice to the world. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name which he is called is the Word of God. Who is this? It's Jesus. 
And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's your king. And one day he's going to come and the Bible says he will come with justice and equity and truth. And once and for all, he will deal sin and death and the devil a final blow and will take the whole world under his reign and say, I am God, you are not. When that day comes, beloved, the whole world will know that he is king. And he will execute justice. Justice will come. There's more. The Bible tells us that one day he'll take the devil, that great deceiver, the tempter, the one who ruined everything and marred, caused sin to come to mar the garden. He will take the enemy and the leash that he has around his neck, he will pull finally and say, that's it, no more. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There is coming a day when the deceiver will no longer deceive, the accuser will no longer accuse, and the tempter will no longer tempt, and Christ will come and say, that's it, it's over, you're done. And there will be no more temptation, no more flesh, no more sinful desire. Everything that permeates from your heart will be nothing but good and gracious and generous and God-centered. God will solve it. Revelation also tells us that He will bring resolution to our pain. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. All the way back to the garden, he takes us back to the cool of the day fellowship between Adam and Eve that was marred by their eating of that tree and the temptation by Satan. And he takes us all the way back and he says, Behold, now God dwells with his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The tabernacle showed it. The temple demonstrated. The Holy Spirit makes it a living, breathing reality now. And when we get to glory, we experience it in all of its fullness. And notice this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore because the former things have passed away. Every tear, every pain, every cry will all be wiped away. And God once and for all will say, I am going to solve this. Do you see why this is so important? So much of suffering happens because of the things that are, are, that are unfair. This nagging sense within your soul of this is so just unjust. Some of you have suffered because of the sinfulness of others. Some of you in this room, people have done you seriously wrong. And there's nothing you can do. But he'll make it right. 
Others of you have borne the silent pain of unresolved justice issues from your past. And the beauty of this promise is that one day God is going to bring everything into the light. And ultimately the end of suffering comes as God brings final resolution to the mess that sin created. Sin makes a mess. And God says, I'm going to solve it. And bring resolution. Then notice, he does even more. The text also tells us, Revelation 21, that God is not only going to solve the justice issues, but He's also going to fix it. Look at verse 5, Revelation 21. And He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You know why we need these words? Because we need to know that one day this isn't it. That one day He's going to make all things new. And so He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Notice the focus on who. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. That's the way it's supposed to be. And one day God's going to restore. He's going to fix everything. Notice will be free from sin and from harm. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Notice the centerpiece of all of eternity is the who. It's who God is and who the Lamb is. The city is so marvelously in, the, in its God-centeredness that it needs no sun or moon or shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God is its light. It's the thing that we long for and loved and lived for now becomes the very light of our existence in all of eternity. And its lamp is the Lamb, and by its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. You know why that is so special to me? Because the night is the hardest when you're mourning. You're so worn out from fighting all day long, you crawl into bed, and you just pray, Lord, when I wake up, I've got to feel different. In glory, hear me, beloved, there is no night. There's only morning. There's only in the morning, morning. There's only that sense of when you wake up and, oh, another day, more daily grace. That's what heaven and the new earth and then the new heavens are all about. And it says they bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Which means today, if you've never received Christ, your name isn't in that book. And when Christ comes, He comes as the judge of your sin, not as the vindicator of your soul, as your Savior. God will fix it. Last text. Revelation 22.1 And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, 
Look at that. There's nothing to curse anymore. There's, there's, there's nothing that's evil or bad, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. And there will be no light of lamp or sun. For the, God, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Do you understand what this means? It means that the followers of Jesus do not put their hope in this world. Painful though it is, hard as it is, they they live with a spiritual eye fixed on an eternal relationship with their glorious reigning God. Detailed for us in the book of Revelation, they live with the sure hope that there is coming a day when you will fix it. You will settle it. You will make it just. You will establish truth. And you will make it right. And that means for you that there is no pain. There is no hardship. No suffering. No difficulty. Hear me. There has not been one tear that you've shed that has been a waste. That's been pointless or purposeless. Everything that's happened has all been a part in your life of God's plan to declare to you graciously and lovingly, look, I got this. I will solve it. I will fix it. You just simply rest in who I am. It means that we live in this gap between our present pain and the hardship that we endure and the ultimate restoration, and we live in this tension right now, and the confession of our hearts, the cry of our soul, is simply, I know who you are, and I can trust you. I choose to trust you. I choose to bless. I believe that one day, you will fix it. You will solve it. So the ending of Job reminds us that the ultimate ends of suffering is this firm confidence within our souls that God has to solve it and that God has to fix it. And what we do until then is rest in who He is and what He has promised. We embrace the fact that our ultimate hope rests in the who question. It means that in the tension between our pain and our God reigning, we rest in this confidence that we have that our future is filled with a Christ, with a Savior, with a King who is going to make it all right. And in that firm hope, we rest. And so we pray, Lord, help me to keep trusting you. And as we do, he says, I'm helping you keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. I'm clinging to you, Lord. I don't know if I can hold on much longer. And what you don't know is undergirding you are sovereign hands holding you up. Yes, you are clinging, but he's helping you cling. And you say, I don't know if I can make it one more day. And God says, here's daily grace. I'm going to pour it out upon you. It means that you are no fool when your confession is my hope. My only hope is you. You can fix it. 
You can solve it. And therefore, my role is just to say, I choose to bless your name. So, Lord, help us to keep trusting the one who keeps us trusting. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today who if they could rewrite history. They would just want the truth to be known. Maligned, accused, poorly treated, reputations that were soiled, and they can't undo it. And one day, Lord, you're going to set the record straight. So until then, help them to rest. For those, Lord, with pasts that had unfair, even unjust or sinful things happen, that today, Lord, here at 96th in town, Columbus, and at worship too, that you would pour out your heart by the Holy Spirit and remind them that one day you are going to settle all accounts. So Lord, help us to rest that one day you're going to solve everything. And then Christ, oh, that you would help us to cling to you knowing that one day you're going to fix everything that's broken. Lord, I imagine that there's some people today that just need to say, Lord, I, I choose to believe that one day all this pain will not be pointless. Oh, whether you're here this morning at 96th in town at Worship 2 or in our Columbus venue, I just don't want you to leave today if God by His Spirit... <clears throat> has specifically spoke to your heart. We'll have some folks available here in our worship too and also at Columbus to talk with you up here at the front. We'd like nothing more than just to be able to pray with you. And that's what our desire would be. So they're here to serve you. If you're a visitor today, we're so glad you came. It's a special place. God's here. We'd like to get to know you. Our coffee talk room is available for you just to connect. And so, O church, receive this as our benediction from 2 Thessalonians 2. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, yes, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen.